Hey folks, this show's coming to you on a Tuesday just because of that new job I mentioned a while back and because Thanksgiving happened on a Sunday this year in Mexico. What I'd like to talk to you about now, though, is what's going to happen SFD over the next month or so. No big or particularly bad news, it's just that I'll be traveling through most of the month of December and I don't want to commit to having a show for you every Monday. What will happen is Patreon subscribers will get a new show both for November and December, and I've got a few ideas for shorts that will probably get done next month, so it won't be totally dry. The good news is that once I am home visiting my folks in the US, I'll be able to lay hands on some texts I haven't been able to get here in Mexico, including the 10,000 Day War, which is probably the most thorough history of the entire Vietnam conflict out there. I'll be reading the whole month, and with any luck, we'll be hearing about the French misadventures in Indochina by January. I've been eyeballing Rob Morris's numbers on YouTube with considerable envy. A lot of that's due to the quality of the product that Rob is putting out, but some of it comes from YouTube getting a lot of drive-by attention. You're watching an SNL skit that touches on Iran, and suddenly your sidebar is full of more Freedom Foundation content. That doesn't really happen for a podcast, so while I'm home, if I've got the time, I'm going to be piecing together a couple of topics that wouldn't work so well in a podcast anyway, including a survey of Vietnam War movies, to look at what they reflect about us as the American people, and the world if you're not American, and about the war, and those, or at least that one, should be up on YouTube in December. As far as today's episode goes, the same caveats as every show that I do with Rob apply. There's been some pretty heavy editing, so the audio is not as pretty as it could be, although I think it's good. And it all ends pretty abruptly, since Rob and I spent the last 40 minutes or so dealing with some good, but mostly inane questions from a chat that got pretty ugly at points. All in all, though, I like the show, and we dug pretty deep on the State Department, so that's all worth hearing. Let's get to it, then. I'm John Coombs, he's Rob Morris, and this is Talk for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. 
And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Hey, Rob. Yeah, this is John again. This is what, our fourth show? Um, oh, gosh. I think we're up to our fifth or sixth show. Either way, I'm pretty excited about it. And uh, people who have listened to my podcast know that I put out a short show uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, uh, on this very same topic. So I'm pretty psyched to talk about it. Uh, as am I. I've been meaning to do a ser- even a series of videos on the State Department, its importance, and what Tillerson and Trump are doing to it, but I have just not been getting around to it. Uh, so I was really excited to see John's program uh, on this topic. It's uh, great. I'd recommend it highly. But I also sort of disagreed with it to an extent, and I think we'll get into that in uh, the course of this program. I think it's tremendously valuable, and you should give it a listen. And I am grateful for the opportunity to finally get into this. Um, So I think, first off, we should just talk about, perhaps for the international listeners or local listeners who may just not be aware, U.S. listeners, local listeners has sort of an interesting definition for John and I. I'm currently speaking from Istanbul, Turkey, and John is speaking from Guadalajara, Guadalajara, Mexico. Yeah. So I thought just to start off, we should talk about what the Department of State is. Put simply, it's what in most countries would be called a foreign ministry. Department of State, I think, I was sort of researching this a bit. Do you know why the, the roots behind the Department of State terminology? I know it changed around World War II because it was originally foreign something. It was, the, it was the first ever cabinet department. Yes, that's, the, uh, the, that's one of the most fascinating things about this department. And one of the things I kind of want to tease out a bit is why... Yeah, it, was, it was a Department of Foreign Affairs at the very beginning. Yeah, uh, one of the things I want to tease out with this is why... Uh, exactly conservatives hate the Department of State so much, which is definitely sort of a subtext of what's going on right now, because it's something that I frankly don't understand. If you look, fundamentally is diplomacy. Uh, The ambassadors, the staffers of our embassies, our consulates are part of the State Department. That's what the State Department is. The State Department is the face of the United States to the world. This is one of the most basic functions that government has. If you look at any state, any agency or department of the U.S. government, it's either much, much newer than the Department of State, or it has changed dramatic and and made its scope much larger since the time of the Founding Fathers. But what the the Department of State does today is certainly much larger and certainly has more details to it. But... It's probably the only agency that like George Washington would go to Washington, D.C. and pretty much understand. I mean, it's, it's about diplomacy. It's about managing our relationships with the rest of the countries of the world. So that's always been something that's kind of bugged me. I don't quite understand why it is that the Department of State has always been such a hate object for folks on the right. I mean, it's, it's pretty much the only like founding fathers approved Department of Government. So before, before we get into exactly why Republicans hate it, which I think I have a pretty good idea about that, just to, just to give a slightly, slightly more rounded description of what goes on at state. So there's, there's two different kinds of employees at the State Department, right? You have 13,000, no, right now it's 15,150 foreign service officers. So these are people who took a foreign service exam. They're kind of an elite core of diplomatic staff. 
And this is everybody at every embassy in the entire world. Everybody that interacts with the United States in a country that isn't the U.S., they're interacting with a foreign service officer. And then back in the United States, there's 11,000 civil service employees. So these are everybody who works at Foggy Bottom in D.C. So what the Department of State is, is a massive bureaucracy, which allows the president to interact with everybody else around the world, right? And, so, and it's a tremendously complex job that is being done. And it's frankly, it's impressive that it's, it, they're able to do it with as few people as they have. Yeah. And, and the thing I wanted to say there is bureaucracy, especially for people on the right in the United States, but really across the board is this super dirty word, right? Nobody likes a bureaucrat and nobody likes a bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree with that to a degree. Yeah. Well, but one of the things I wanted to point out is that when you're organizing anything on a large scale, bureaucracy is a necessary step in order to conduct that organization, right? So you look at like what made the Roman Empire so different from other empires of its time. Well, they had an efficient bureaucracy run out of a professional secretariat at the very top of the organization. Everybody else in the world had kind of ad hoc nobles and whatever else was going on. But the Roman Empire had a bureaucracy, and that's what was making it strong. That's what made it strong. The problem with bureaucracy is when it gets too large and too little accountable to the people who are supposed to be running the government. That is the American people, right? And I think that's really the root of what Republicans in general dislike about the State Department. You know, it's large. It's difficult to hold it accountable either to Congress or to anybody else because of its size and because of how distributed it is over the world. And I think we'll get more into this later, but I think that size is essential to its mission. It needs to be that large to do what it does. That, that I agree with wholeheartedly. Uh, you, you don't think it's just because Republicans don't like smart people? Well, you know, that's also, that's, that's a historical gripe that I think Republicans and other populists would have with the State Department, that it, it, it's always recruited out of the best universities, and it's tough to get in, you know? You have to be really smart, and generally you have to have a really good resume. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's just, and they, they know things. And I think that's, that's the most important thing about the State Department is that it actually puts, and I think you made a really good point of this in your podcast, it's unlike the military, unlike the intelligence services that have sort of very targeted approaches to, you know, enemies or a, a particular debacle that we've gotten ourselves into. The State Department focuses on everything. And whether the president needs to know something about China, they might have a number of assumptions and, and pieces of knowledge that he already has about, or whether he's trying to deal with you know, Equatorial Guinea or, or some other country that he may not have ever heard of, the State Department has resources on the ground, has information related to these folks. And uh, as to your point, it needs to be in a large bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah. And all right, so, so I don't know. I don't know if we necessarily gave a, a, a tight enough, concise enough description of what the department does. But to expand that out a little, all right, just just to give everybody a, a better idea here, because uh, I think I might have been a little haphazard there. So on on one level, if you interact with the U.S. abroad, that is, if you're applying for a visa, if you need, you know, at a higher level, if you need to talk to somebody who's involved in the U.S. government, the person you interact with is part of the State Department and works at an embassy. If you, an American, are traveling abroad, the people that take care of you, that monitor you, that will replace your passport if you need it, those guys are part of the State Department. But also, the State Department runs U.S. foreign policy across the entire world. So if the president says, uh, man, you know what went down in Somalia and we lost some military guys, we need to address the situation in Somalia. When he asks for information about that country, the information he's getting comes from the State Department. 
And when he says we want to change U.S. foreign policy with regard to Somalia, that goes out in cables to the embassy there and the ambassador and his staff implement that policy. The State Department, and we're going to talk about how this role has diminished in recent years because that's one of the problems we're going to have to address. But the State Department is the president's eyes, ears, hands, and feet across the entire world. If he wants to know something or do something, it goes through state. And again, I think I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but that's sort of one of the fundamental problems with Donald Trump, not just in relation to the State Department, but across all of government, is that he just assumes he can run policy with his Twitter feed. And the real world is a lot more complicated, as we, as we see over and over and over again with each of the crises, crises that develop. And one, one last point is that when Rob says that maybe one of the Republican gripes with the State Department is that they know things, it's that when you take guys like George Bush or, sorry, George Bush Jr. or Donald Trump, who have kind of bold, maybe bad ideas about foreign policy, they're going to get pushback because there's thousands, literally thousands of people who know better than them who are all going to be working against bad policy. So foreign service officers are not, they're not policymakers, right? They don't get to set U.S. foreign policy. But say um, an interest section in Tehran, in Iran, right? We don't have an embassy there, but we have an interest section. So say Donald Trump wants to torch the nuclear deal. Well, everybody in that embassy or that interest section is going to be fighting that decision in memos that are heading back to the, back to the White House. And they're going to be trying to ameliorate the effects of that on the ground because they know it's bad policy. They can't not do the policy, but they can try to stymie it, you know, and they know better. And that's and that's something that's hard to take when you've become president of the United States, despite your massive shortcomings. And I think it's important to point out here, because I think I think there's probably some folks who might have a knee jerk reaction that, oh, they're trying to block Trump. They're the deep state, which actually is a concept that I don't know, that's a very long conversation. But I think it's important to point out that this has happened before. And the Department of State tried to bring about better decisions in Vietnam, tried to bring about better decisions in China. Your podcast on this is great on both of those topics. And it's, it's, it's the fact that state is there and actually knows things. So it's not some sinister people that are trying to bring valuable perspectives. Yeah. And I, I don't know when the point is in the show that we're actually going to get this, because I think I think we'll have to start addressing what it is that Tillerson's doing at some point. But and it, and it might be it might be the point that you and I start to disagree but the State Department is the deep state. These, these are the people who are unelected and not particularly accountable. And I think that's a good thing because they don't just block Donald Trump. They block every president. They have, a, they have a force of institutional momentum that is helpful in keeping the United States from doing really dumb stuff all over the world. Absolutely. I, 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 do, I do agree that that is, that is an incredibly valuable service that they provide. And I think presidents with a sense acknowledge that the State Department uh, has a source of it, has sources of information and the fact that they just look at foreign policy all day and that should weigh in his decision-making process. So before we do get into what Rex Tillerson and Donald Trump are up to, I think I just there's just a broader point that I want to make that actually gets to sort of how I look at the world or rather how I don't look at the world with my YouTube channel. I spend a lot of time focusing on what's going wrong I spend a lot of time focusing on Yemen or Saudi Arabia or Syria or, or, or what have you. What I don't focus on is the really broad picture because it's, it's, it's almost impossible to focus on. And I, I definitely want to do more videos that focus on how the whole world is doing and the fact that sort of American empire, the Pax Americana, the liberal world order, whatever you call it, 
generally limps along and, and, and kind of works. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the State Department. I mean, the, the, the massive job that the State Department does, I think, is not fully appreciated. It's not just about one crisis area. It's not just about Iran or Iraq. It's about, like, trade negotiations with uh, Australia or labor rights in Kazakhstan. You know, I mean, like, the State Department has this incredibly massive, massive range of responsibilities that is far beyond the attention span of any journalist, any politician, any podcaster, any YouTube channel, any president. And, and I think it's just the scope of what the State Department does and how important that is. What, no matter what you feel about, and I think this is somewhere we, we, where we do disagree, John, uh, like no matter how you feel about U.S. influence more broadly, whether it's malign, whether it's, whether it's a good thing, the State Department is that far more significant than the Defense Department, far more dis- uh, significant than our military. So what's happening with Rex Tillerson and what's happening with Donald Trump in the State Department is super problematic. Yeah, and just one more point there is, you know, I keep trying to emphasize the size of this organization. So the United States is the biggest player on the world stage. Uh, and what that necessarily means is that we maintain relations with every single other country and non-country entity in the entire world. So, you know, if you're the Dutch, you don't necessarily have a big embassy in Yemen or in Nicaragua. But the United States, we have embassies and consulates in like every major city in the entire world. And what that allows us to do is to relate to other countries and to people on a really, really granular level. So I'm in the second largest city in Mexico. There's a consulate here. And if there's some shindig that goes down with the municipal government, there's going to be a diplomatic officer from the consulate at that thing to express U.S. feeling at this this minor little city level event, you know, in some in some other country. And if you look at, uh, you know, obviously most of our audience won't have been looking for visas to go to the United States, but I do a lot of work with Mexicans helping them to prepare for those visa interviews. And it's just, you know, it's just some nobody going to the United States, but they have to show up with two or three binders worth of employment information and bank statements and property values, all of which just to get in the United States, because that's the level of service and of scrutiny that the State Department is applying. And without the size and expertise of this organization, you know, if you're trying to manage foreign policy with 190 odd different countries out of the Twitter account of one man, it's I mean, it's impossible. You can't do it. Yeah. I mean, the State Department is tremendously important. And I would argue it's, while absolutely, uh, you know, I'm probably more of a fan of a strong military than you are, John. Like, I I do believe, actually, quite fervently that the State Department is more important than the military. And the State Department is what we're going to need to keep us going, keep us running in the era that is coming by the end of this century, where our military dominance has disappeared. Diplomacy becomes more important in this sort of fraught era where our like hyperpower status is slipping away, not less important. So let's, I suppose, with that. Oh, and yeah, and I think that the figure that I found about that is like, we spend, I think, about half a trillion dollars on the US military every year. We spend about 0.2 to 0.4 trillion, no, wait, 0.02 to point, anyway, we spend a tiny, tiny fraction of that on the State Department. You know, we, we, we uh, measure our military budget in the hundreds of billions of dollars, and we measure our State Department uh, budget in the tens of billions of dollars, and very few tens of billions of dollars. I think, that's a, I think that's a tremendous imbalance. And while there's certainly scope for State Department reform, cutting the budget is not the idea. 
Yeah. So just just for some numbers here, the Trump administration for next year has requested $700 billion for the military and 37.6 for a state, which which is two thirds of what it got last year and only 60% of its 1985 budget. So you look at the world in 1985, you had a world divided between the United States and the Soviet Union, one in which the State Department was mostly focused on this one conflict. And today, you've got a world with uh, six different poles and hundreds and hundreds of different entities we got to interact with, and we're only working with six-tenths of the budget we had back then, even though we're looking at a much more complicated world, and a world in which military power is much less effective in the conduct of diplomacy. Yes. Absolutely. Very, very true. So, yes, so I think we, 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 we've now finally launched into it. So, first off, I should probably mention that Rex Tillerson was Donald Trump's choice for the uh, Secretary of State. He heads, he now heads the State Department. And in as much as you might expect that I'd be down on that appointment, because he was the former head of ExxonMobil, yeah, I'm down on it in that sense that Exxon has created climate change, spent a lot of time burying that information once their scientists reached it in the late 80s. Um, and all that stuff. And, and there's a lot of the yeah, standard, stuff. Standard, uh, standard, standard left-wing whining? Is that yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay. But the other thing, the thing that makes Rex Tillerson very well qualified for the position is that ExxonMobil has a similar bureaucracy under it. That is that it operates in almost every country in the world. It has a ton of employees and they're relatively similar jobs in a management sense. So in that way, Rex Tillerson wasn't a bad appointment, really. Yeah, I, I think I think he's he's got an impressive resume for sure, and honestly, you know, he's he's actually I mean he's now aside from how he actually runs the department and does the job he's supposed to do, he is one of the adults in the room. I mean, he he's he was one of the he's one of the reasons we've still got an Iran deal, even if it's already even if it's on shaky shaky ground. Yeah, and just. Just to clarify there, uh, we have to recertify that bill every three months. And every time it has come up for recertification, Donald Trump has asked Rex Tillerson to come up with reasons, that is to invent reasons to decertify, even though the Iranians are following their side of the deal. And Rex Tillerson, to his credit, has said, uh, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's I mean, that's great. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the other thing he's not really interested in doing is running the State Department. Donald Trump put forward a frankly ludicrous budget that I'm not too up on the ways and means or what have you. But my understanding is that most of even Republicans in the Senate were like, yeah, we're not going to cut state's budget that much. But my understanding is that even though the Congress doesn't want to cut state's budget that much, Rex Tillerson has sort of been acting as if they had and has sort of implemented hiring freezes and is, is sort of operating under the assumption that they are going to cut 30% of the budget. Yeah, well, so there's there's a couple of different things that are at work there. The first is that the federal hiring freeze that's been in effect since February does apply to the Foreign Service and to the Civil Service at Foggy Bottom. And when you have a 26,000-man workforce, there's a pretty significant turnover every year. You know, people age out. And if you're not replacing them, you're effectively shrinking the workforce. So that's what they're doing. And then the other thing is, so these, these numbers are going to sound nuts, but... This year, in 2017, 60% of career ambassadors have quit or been pressured to quit. This year, we've received only one half as many applicants to the Foreign Service as we did last year. And there are 74 top-level positions, and I'll explain this in a second, with no nominee from the Trump administration. So that's, that's shared responsibility between Rex Tillerson and Trump, because Tillerson should be sending him candidates for these positions, right? So when I say top-level, at the State Department, you've got the secretary at the very top, and then under him, you have undersecretaries, right? So one is regional affairs, 
So that's the guy that manages all the embassies. You got one for management, so he, you know, he does like uh, budgets and all that kind of stuff. And then you have undersecretaries for like uh, human rights, and uh, they're called functional areas, so narco trafficking, all, all sorts of stuff. So most of them have not been hired. And then the third level under that are assistant secretaries, and we've hired almost none of them. We're missing 15 different assistant secretaries out of, I think, 20, 22 or 30 positions. We're missing four undersecretaries, and we haven't appointed 30 ambassadors. Now, listen to the countries, some of the countries to which we don't have ambassadors right now. South Korea, Cuba, Turkey, Qatar, Syria, Somalia, Venezuela. That is, every country that's experienced a major crisis or a diplomatic crisis since Trump has become president does not have an ambassador. We've got uh, Trump on Twitter talking about uh, starting wars with their neighbor and raining down fire. Uh, up until very recently, we did not have a... Actually, has he even been confirmed yet? Nope. Uh, it is totally nuts. Well, and, and, yeah. and I think the, the appointments thing is worth bearing down on again, because this is a problem for the Trump administration across government, that they just don't have the organizational wherewithal to hire people which is, uh, is nuts. Uh, they try to sort of justify it as like, oh, well, we don't need to hire people because we're making a smaller government. Well, like, if you want to make a smaller government, you need to hire people to fire people. You're dealing with like a bureaucracy of 4 million direct employees and maybe 10 million contractors. Uh, Donald Trump is not going to figure out who to fire himself. You need to actually hire people. So that's a broader issue across. Yeah, and um, if I can... But it's, I think you, you were just pointing out that it is the worst with the State Department, is that correct? Yeah. So to consider a sort of an example outside of government, my folks work for General Motors all their lives. So after the 2008 crash, General Motors was in big trouble. It was too big. It needed to get rid of brands. It needed to liquidate a bunch of stuff. And it had to do that in bankruptcy. So the way they did that was to have a really competent dude at the top making those decisions, deciding what to cut, balancing, you know, Oldsmobile versus Saab versus Pontiac. Well, they eliminated all those brands. But the Trump plan in that situation would have been to fire everybody in the top three levels of GM and then just leave it. And that wouldn't, that doesn't, that doesn't solve anything. You know, GM doesn't go away. All the money you're spending doesn't go away. There's just no one directing it anymore. Yeah, it is not a solution. And in uh, State's particular case, it's not only not solving the problem, it's making the problem larger. Because if, if your idea is that the State Department is inefficient, right, which I, which I assume is the idea that's behind Trump's attempts to sabotage it. I, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. And it may be the case that it is inefficient. But one of the ways that you would increase its efficiency is getting more decisions out of the secretary's hands, right? You devolve those decisions down to a lower level. But right now, Rex Tillerson, because he hasn't hired these 74 people, He's making decisions for like every embassy in the world. He's making decisions that are not Secretary of State decisions. And it's more than any one man or even him with his secretariat can handle. And it's slowing stuff down. It's not speeding it up. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think the, the, the sort of mismanagement is pretty, pretty extraordinary. Now, I, I, the question to which this can be blamed on Rex Tillerson or Donald Trump, I think, is, is kind of open. I mean, Tillerson has absolutely tried to hire people and he's been shot down. Remember famously about three or four months back, you know, his choice for undersecretary, who was a, actually a notorious useless neocon, but regardless was his choice, was uh, shot down by yeah. uh, the Trump administration. So it's, it's as far as the budget cut, I mean, Tillerson has definitely been too, too willing to, to implement that. But, you know, it's what his boss told him to do. And as far as the people not getting appointed, I mean, that's not 
on Rex Tillerson. What is on Rex Tillerson is his sort of attempt to reorganize the department. Should we, should we start getting into that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get us kicked off there, if you would. It's kind of fascinating, the sort of cultural mismatch we've got here. I think we pointed out earlier how you know, Rex Tillerson is coming from the business world, and unlike Donald Trump, he's a guy with legitimate accomplishments in the business world. I mean, this guy ran one of the largest companies in the world quite successfully for quite some time. I mean, this guy is quite something, but he's coming into the State Department, which has a completely different culture, a completely different set of jargon. I think you've dived into the material surrounding his, his proposed reorganization a bit more than I have, but it's, it's I mean, some of these documents, it's, uh, it's sort of like a jargon apocalypse. You know, you've got, you've got all kinds of meaningless corporate language, you know, competing with meaningless government language, and it, it just, it is not, not impressive. Yeah, I, I was actually, I was pretty surprised when I dove into these documents. Because what I expected to find, given everything that Trump and Tillerson had both said about streamlining and cutting down the department, I thought they were going to have some really ambitious and, in my opinion, bad changes to make. But prepping for this show, you know, I, I looked through a bunch of Brookings Institution documents and Blue Ribbon Commission reports back for the last 20 years or so. All of them had much more ambitious proposals than the stuff that Tillerson's put together. And when you talk about jargon stuff, so the proposals in the redesign plan are streamlining policy and presence maximizing the impact of foreign assistance, implementing a global service delivery framework, and readying and empowering a 21st century workforce. All of which, if you manage to struggle through the stuff that comes after those headings, is basically like do the job we're already doing, but do it more goodly. They're not actual proposals for change, and they are totally imparsable. Like as far as streamlining policy and presence, we're creating an evidence-based and data-driven process to enhance foreign policy formulation and execution, as well as optimize and realign our global footprint. Yeah. Yeah, so just doing our job. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's basically just meaningless management jargon that we paid somebody a million bucks to put together. Exactly. Except for there are two or three proposals on this list that actually mean something and that really do address problems. So... Those are improving governance and accountability for IT platforms, modernizing legacy systems and software, which is really the same thing, and upgrading technology infrastructure. So something people may not know is that the building they occupy at Foggy Bottom is really old, and almost all of the systems they use to communicate with embassies and to communicate within Foggy Bottom are also super old. Maybe not everybody knows, but people who work in government offices, they don't use Gmail, they don't use MSN. They have their own proprietary email systems, and they are, in general, really bad and really old. And the ones at state are especially bad and old. Not only in the sense that they're just, they don't work very well in the first place, but also that they're really hard to secure. So the State Department doesn't have a good ability to transmit confidential communications between the rest of the world and the State Department anymore. Oh, you mean, yeah, oh God, you said this might have something to do with Hillary Clinton and her emails. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, that's that's one of the things that comes out in this report. You know, some of the stuff that went on with Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, yeah, those emails weren't well enough secured, but not because she wasn't securing them, but because nobody at state can actually secure them. So those proposals are good. Those are actually real concrete steps towards improving the performance of the State Department. The problem being that they're going to cost tens of billions of dollars. And if you cut the budget by a third, you're not going to have any money for that kind of thing. But it is, I think it's telling that so you've got this supposedly sweeping redesign of the State Department and the, the main lessons learned for the price of a million dollars is we need a better email system. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be it. I don't, I don't think this particular 
Well, I don't know what the particular cost of this uh, of this review was. It seems to mostly be working off of past think tank reviews, and then they, and then they did something that we'll get to later, which is actually very interesting. Which was a oh, what the hell is it called? Uh, a you it's called a listening report, which is where they go around and they talk to hundreds of employees about what they feel are the problems with the agency, and that actually has some interesting conclusions. Yeah, I think we've established what you know what's happening, um, and I think I gotta say now I think that the a I think that the State Department should be funded to a dramatically higher level than it is now. B I think that what Trump and Tillerson are doing to it is crazy. But C and I don't know, this may be somewhere where we disagree. Like I am not a huge fan of the State Department as it is currently running. Whether or not Tillerson's attempt to uh, reform the State Department has been useful, I think it is. It is necessary. I think we need a better State Department than the one we have now. Uh, cutting, cutting the budget and not hiring people is not the way to do it. But I, 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 I sort of, just in my experience in Turkey, my experience around the industries that have sprung up uh, to service to the Syrian civil war, I, I, I desperately, desperately want a better State Department. And I'm not sure what your general read on. And I'm not talking about State Department in the era of Trump. I'm talking about the State Department long before, I think, has had some issues that need to be addressed. I don't know what your take on that is. Well, I think I think you've got some stuff that comes out of your personal experience, and I think we should address that. And I think I might have some counter perspectives because I occupied not uh, exactly equivalent, but a similar position when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Mexico. I think I had a lot of the same perspectives on on interacting with people and uh, and stuff that we get into. The other thing is I, I don't I don't honestly have a lot of professional opinions on reforming the State Department outside of this show. But now I've gone through and run a, read a bunch of Brookings stuff. So I know without any personal stakes in it, I know what people at state feel are the problems at state and what the necessary reforms are. And I think that's not something that's known to almost anybody in the general population. So we can get to that afterwards. Um, so to basically about the my take on the State Department here, and I've known a fair amount of people who work for the State Department or and generally, uh, I mean, everyone I've, I've met uh, has been lovely and generally very bright people uh, and whatnot. But I just, I, I don't kind of mired in groupthink and they don't actually get to know the country very well, as, as I think the main, the main problem that I've seen. They spend a lot of time hanging out with each other. This is probably perhaps my experience in Turkey where security has been a, a high priority. You've got a lot of uh, a lot of State Department folks who sort of live in uh, nice, secure, uh, nice, secure apartment complexes, pretty close to the absurdly secure Istanbul consulate, and you know I'm not really sure they get out much, um, actually see and interact with people in the country they're supposed to be dealing with, and uh, I think this is rooted in uh, a problem that I've actually had uh, heard from people who work for the State Department is that, that it, it's it's a it's a very brief tenure that these people have in any given country. They spend two years doing consular services somewhere, then they spend two years somewhere else. They're not really focusing on a region or a particular country. They're not really f- picking up deep expertise. And I think that that's something that we need going forward is, is a real deep expertise and a willingness to get outside of the hyper-secure consulate that you uh, that you live in. And I, I'm not confident that the State Department serves any of those purposes. I'm not confident that they do real high-value diplomacy. So there's there's a couple of different things there. One is that, yeah, terms are too short. That's, that's something that's coming out of the State Department itself, the conversational review that we were talking about. Everybody reported that terms are too short. So that's, yeah, basic. 
If a Peace Corps volunteer's term is two years, then a diplomatic officer's term should probably be a little bit longer, right? The other thing, as far as security goes, as far as security and, and officers getting out of the embassies, is that I think they experience a lot of the same pressures that I did as a Peace Corps volunteer. That is that, you know, you want to get out. The thing you want to do is be among the people. But there's now so much, I mean, even even for lowly nothing Peace Corps volunteers, there's so much pressure coming out of D.C. to keep anybody from getting hurt. And you look at you look at the the incredible, ridiculous process that Hillary Clinton went through after what happened at Benghazi happened, which is just something that unfortunately happens at U.S. consulates. You know, they're dangerous jobs. And so the culture that grows up is like never again, never have another Benghazi. And that means keeping foreign service officers in those apartments. It means keeping them on their uh, embassies and consular grounds. So there's an institutional pressure that's helping to prevent officers from going out and really getting to know the countries that they're in, especially if those countries have security problems, which is all of the most important countries that we have relations with. But I think you can speak to the fact that, you know, yeah, there are security issues in Istanbul, but not in any way that should prevent American diplomatic officers from being out and about among the people, right? Yeah, I'm safer than any American city. And it's it's something that I experienced in Mexico. You know, I... I followed the same rules as embassy officers, and I was not allowed to travel to any of the states in the top third of the country, about half of the states in the middle third, and half the states in the bottom third. And since I've been out of Peace Corps, I've been all over the north. I've been all over the south, and I've been just as safe as I always was. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think that really, really, that really goes that really goes overboard, because at, at a, the problem with the United States is just like starting out basically, is that we're already incredibly insulated from the rest of the world. Uh, you know, we've got an ocean on either side. Um, and unlike, uh, I've been spending a lot of time, I'm just, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here, but I've been spending a yeah, lot cool. of time looking at the British Empire recently and sort of trying to draw out lessons that the U.S. Empire can sort of learn from the British and sort of avoid falling the way that they did. And what's extraordinary is looking at the British Empire and like the the I think it's perhaps a little exaggerated, but, you know, famously, you'd have like a couple dozen guys running vast swaths of territory in Africa or India or, or something along those lines. But what's interesting about these people is that they lived in these countries and they knew the languages and they knew, actually knew things about their country. They were actually experts on those countries. And, and Britain kind of had, had to have that and had to do that. Uh, when the sort of British Empire was forming had to figure out how to make larger markets like India and China work for their benefit. So they had to have people there who actually knew things. And that sort of got into the DNA of their imperial administration. And I think to this day, tiny little Britain has got much better sort of language resources and whatnot than the United States does. Um, and it's and, and with the United States, however, like from the moment that we started even bothering to pay attention to the rest of the world, we were the largest economy in the world. And, and sort of everybody has always come to us. And English, the fact that English is so much more broadly available now, makes it even more of a problem. What it, I mean, it's great for us, but it makes us stupid. You know, you have these State Department folks going out for, you know, two years here, two years there. I think it does get a bit longer as they get further on in their career, but not dramatically longer. And, you know, maybe they'll spend, you know, three to six months studying the language and getting the basics. But when they get to their country, they won't actually ever have to use the language because everybody speaks English. And it's just, we, we don't. I don't want to be clear that 
not all of that is absolute. There are definitely officers that do speak and understand their countries. What well, you're describing no. is that there are policies at state that work to prevent that from happening. Yeah, I'm not saying there aren't individual officers that do understand the languages and like go above and beyond, but like that's that shouldn't be great. That no, should be I, like I got nice. you. I just I have buddies in the foreign that's service the I'm listening to this show. I just want to be I want to be clear that I, I think they're doing good work. I think my experience and my uh, take on the, the Syrian war has left me perhaps over jaded and over uh, bitter about this. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the State Department related institutions in the United Kingdom, France, etc., and certainly in Turkey, like basically decided to destroy Syria. And that's what happened over the past five, six years by a bunch of folks who were convinced that, you know, they knew the country in question and that they were doing, they were doing God's work. So I, I don't know. I, I'm, I am perhaps... And I think that's actually, that's something that I, I try to keep myself from doing is sort of forecasting out from the worst experience to, to what the State Department is doing everywhere, because the State Department is everywhere. And no doubt they're doing a much better job in other countries with other issues. Well, I think I think to, to help the audience understand where you and really, really me too, where we're coming from here is that I think I think we were both pretty affected by this. The last Diplomat article that came out of The Wall Street Journal over what was it over this past summer? In any case, about a foreign service officer, a career diplomat named Robin Rafael, who had served for decades in Pakistan. And over her time in Pakistan, she became so well known in Islamabad that she became like a almost a national celebrity in that country and someone who was part of the political class there. Somebody that politicians in Pakistan would come to consult with. You know, she was she was part of the scene. And what ended up happening to her was that in the 2000s, after she'd retired, spent a little bit of time as a lobbyist, and then come back at the request of the ambassador to Pakistan, she'd end up being targeted for investigation as a spy by the FBI, because it looked to them and to other intelligence agencies in the United States that she had gone native, that she had become a source for Pakistani intelligence. And so the huge issue there was that Robin Rafael, this this diplomat, was a diplomat in the old style. That is that the great thing about those old British Empire diplomats and the old style US diplomats in the Foreign Service is that they do, to a certain extent, go native. They get to know Pakistan like a Pakistani, right? They get to understand Pakistani politics and they advocate for Pakistan with their bosses at the State Department. They don't try to undermine US policy towards Pakistan, but they try to best advocate for that country with the State Department. And why that's great is it creates an institutional blockade against rash actions on the part of the military, on the part of new presidents, on the part of the intelligence agencies. But what's happened, and this is maybe a more... Sorry? Keep stupid stuff from happening. Exactly, exactly. Keep stupid stuff from happening. And they also give us a very good window into politics in those countries. That is that no one's going to know Pakistani politics really well, or Mexican politics or anything else until they've spent a long time in that country getting to know it, thoroughly getting to know it. And that used to be the officer that we were trying to create. We used to set up people for long terms, corralled in particular regions uh, and in particular language groups. Uh, And what's happened, especially since 9-11, is there's been this focus on a shift from human intelligence, that is stuff like this lady Robin Rafael was coming up with, you know, personal contacts at high levels, uh, informal meetings, all that kind of stuff, to signals intelligence, which is that you have the NSA and the CIA collecting electronic data from everybody in the entire world. And instead of trying to talk to people, we just listen to what they say on the phone. And that sounded like a really powerful intelligence apparatus when we first came up with it. But it turns out it's incredibly deficient. It's not good enough. 
because of the volume and because of the uh, it, it's just and I, I think there was a, a key point in the Robin Raphael story is that she was called out of retirement. Um, I mean, the the folks the, the was it the ambassador or uh, the ambassador to Pakistan, I think, specifically because they they knew that they needed her contacts and her ability to deal with things. They they called her out of retirement because it's just a resource that we we simply don't have anymore. And to, and to give everybody who hasn't read this article, which is paywalled on the Wall Street Journal, an idea of what we're talking about. So they had all this stuff going on in Pakistan. And this was right around when we went out and assassinated Osama bin Laden. Or maybe, I don't know if that's the right term, but whatever. They had all of these conversations between top Pakistani generals and between top politicians. But the situation was that all of those people, when they talk to each other, they veil what they're really talking about because they know they're being monitored. So guys sitting back in D.C. or in Northern Virginia, even if they could speak the language to understand these people, had no idea what was going on because they didn't have that cultural context. And they send over there or they call up this lady, Robin Raffel, and they send her over there. And in two or three days, she set up meetings with every important person in the country. And she immediately has an idea about what's going on because she had that expertise. And that's something that we simply don't have anymore. And it's, it's, it's telling and frankly horrifying that we, we brought a good diplomat out of retirement and then we, then we investigated her. It's extraordinary. And we pretty much, you know, certainly ruined her career, so, you know, which was towards the tail end anyway. Yeah. But this involved people breaking into, her, breaking into her office, breaking into her home. I'm irritated about the Wall Street Journal paywall. I think that's one of the most important articles I've read in the past year. It's called The Last Ambassador. The Last right? Diplomat. The Last, last Diplomat. diplomat. And, and, and that's, that's really what she is. So, so I think that the, the State Department definitely has some changing to do and definitely has things that need to be improved, but you know, it needs the resources to do that. It needs to be fully budgeted. It needs to have people in the administration making it happen. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna get it in slightly more into these, these think tank reports on the, on the State Department, right? Because I wanna, I wanna point out one of these huge issues that comes up year over year over year, because there's commissions from the Congress, there's commissions from Brookings, and they come up almost always with the same conclusions. You know, I read ones from 2001 and I read ones from last year. And what that is, is that so way back in the day, right? I just I described a little bit a little bit back the org chart and we can I'll maybe put that up in the show notes. But so what it used to be was that you had the secretary at the top and then under him, you had undersecretaries for regional offices. So the main organization at state was what region you belonged to. You know, was it the Far East? Was it Africa? Was it Asia? Whatever said Asia twice there. But what it is now is there's one undersecretary for regional affairs. Uh, and under him are, are the assistant secretaries for every region of the world. So all of the desks, you know, the Asia desk, the Africa desk, that's all under one undersecretary. And then there are, let me count them, one, two, three, four other undersecretaries that now have functional divisions. So you have the undersecretary for economic growth, energy, and environment the Undersecretary for Arms Control, the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy, the Undersecretary for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. And the reason they created those undersecretaries was that people in the United States, people in the Congress or particular interest groups felt that those issues, that is, you know, the environment, arms control, weren't getting enough attention at state. So they created these separate bureaus within the State Department called functional bureaus to address those problems. And what's ended up happening is that those bureaus are low prestige compared to the regional ones. And what they end up doing is duplicating responsibilities. So say you've got a guy in Iran, and what he's looking at with a nuclear deal is limiting arms shipments to Iran. 
So that guy writes a memo about a particular arms deal. Well, that memo then has to go get approved by the Undersecretary for Economic Growth because it's trade, and it has to get approved by the Undersecretary for Arms Control, and it has to get approved by the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy. So what ended up happening is that even though you created these offices to address these particular functions or functional areas, you really just ended up creating overlap and more bureaucratic delay. So the fact is that there are serious reorganizational reforms that have been proposed year over year that probably should go into effect. And what should be really clear is that what Rex Tillerson and Donald Trump are doing are not those streamlining reforms. Like we said before, what they need is reorganization. And instead of doing that, they're just firing the heads of all these bureaus and not rehiring, which means that those bureaus still exist. That inefficiency still exists. There's just no one to manage it now. Mm-hmm. Not, 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 not ideal. I, I took a brief glance at some of those documents, and what was what, what struck me was that the State Department doesn't particularly seem to know what its own mission is. Yeah, and so this this is this is another big problem that's been growing up since World War II, more or less. Before the Second World War, the Secretary of State was the second most powerful man in the United States, and he pretty much ran foreign policy all on his own. There was very little foreign policy involved in elections. So there wasn't any way in which the public was really mediating U.S. foreign policy. President picked a secretary and that secretary ran the rest of the world for the president. And what started happening after the Second World War is that as the military grew up and then as the intelligence agencies grew up and then as stuff like the U.S. trade representative and as other departments like agriculture and commerce started developing international wings, all of the jobs that state used to do started going to other agencies. So the military has its own intelligence collection. The military has its own diplomatic officers. Commerce manages U.S. commerce abroad now. So what started happening is they've siphoned off all of the roles for the State Department, whereas before the State Department would have coordinated all of that action. And as the presidency has been getting more and more imperial, with Donald Trump as like the absolute epitome of that, there's been less and less role for the Secretary of State because the president runs diplomacy out of the White House rather than passing it through his Secretary of State. And what that's done is is left state without a clear role. And the reason that's a problem, I mean, just just to pick one particular area, is when you have the president running diplomacy out of the White House, you have stuff like all those disastrous phone calls that Donald Trump had with other heads of state. Because the people who should be managing those communications are people who actually know something. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And I think that actually, so when I was reading those documents, the, the thing in mission that really bugged me, because once again, probably because of my Turkey Syria experience, was that it seemed like, you know, half of them seemed to think that like, oh, our job is spreading democracy throughout the world. And I think that that's sort of interesting to tease out because the way that seems to have worked in practice is uh, the coup in Ukraine that got a shooting war started in Russia, the sort of attack on the Syrian regime that's killed half a million people. So that, that sort of was like a red flag for me. But on the other hand, I do think that there is, there is something to that because it's sort of spreading demo- if spreading democracy th- through peaceful means is something that I think the State Department does um, and is, is sort of, has been sort of unherald- unheraldedly successful at doing in the countries that don't make the headlines. So I, I was interested to see what you thought about that, because for me, that was like, I sort of read that and I was like, ah, spreading democracy, oh, you want to bomb countries, don't you? But actually, if you zoom out from the places we've destroyed that you do such amazing podcasts on, or failed to destroy, in the case of uh, Vietnam and Iran. Uh, yeah, I mean, how do you feel about that? That, that, that? that was something that really jumped out at me. 
Like, okay. should the State Department see itself as spreading democracy? Well, so two things there. I, w- I want to quote directly from this paragraph in this conversational report, because I think it's even worse than Rob just made it out to be. Then second, I'll talk about what you were just talking about. But So, quote, theme four, unclear mission, does not speak with one voice. For an organization with a very significant role in the world, too many in the Department of State were not clear on the exact mission of the agency. When asked, the three most frequent answers were, quote, installing democracy around the world, unquote, quote, spreading American values, unquote, while the most consensus comes around phrases such as, quote, protecting Americans and the interests of America throughout the world, unquote. People understand that such a mission can be extraordinarily broad, leaving one person to comment, quote, you could make that mean nearly anything, and by the looks of the department, maybe we do, unquote. Yeah, so that's not so great. But what might be more helpful in understanding this is the State Department's actual language, the real mission statement of the department is, quote, to shape and sustain a peaceful, prosperous, just, and democratic world and foster conditions for stability and progress for the benefit of the American people and for people everywhere, unquote. That Um, sounds pretty good. Yeah, no, that's not so bad. Because I think, you know, in the mid-century, we were aiming for a capitalist world and that didn't work out so hot for places like Vietnam or Laos or Cambodia or Malaysia or Indonesia or Iran or the Congo or, you know, any one of those countries. But a democratic world, I think, I think is a fair metric, right, for the end game. But speaking to Rob's point from earlier about the unheralded successes of the State Department in that mission, you know, in Rob and I's former talks about Iran, the ones we've already had, what I've repeated over and over is that we've had a policy of sanctions towards Iran for decades now, a policy of sanctions that's been entirely ineffective. All it's done is serve to reinforce the position of conservatives within that country. The same way it's done in Cuba, the same way it's done in Russia, the same way it's done everywhere. But just as a qualifier, they, they did bring, uh, when once we, you know, through Obama's ability to get the rest of the world to the table, we, it did when we got Europe on side and to some degree China and Russia, that did force them to the table for the Iran nuclear deal. But I yeah, agree. and that's fair enough. Broadly, multilateral sanctions are definitely more effective than unilateral sanctions in our in our normal. But I absolutely agree with the broader point that our general sanctions policy and our positioning towards Iran has been the absolute greatest contributor to the continued presence of a hardline regime. Yeah. We are Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei's best friend. Absolutely, or rather, absolutely true. Or rather Tom Cotton or uh, Donald Trump or... You know, the, the most vehement Iran haters are Ali Khamenei's best friends. Rob's exactly right there. And it's not just that sanctions help to reinforce the positions of the people we least want to help out in these countries. It's that they are the worst possible way to inject American culture and momentum towards democracy into these countries when we already have much better tools at our disposal. And as much as I don't necessarily applaud the spread of unfettered capitalism throughout the world, Man, if you want to put American culture into a country, if you want to get people ready to vote, give them a McDonald's, man. It does not sound like it tracks, but historically, every time a country has opened up its markets to us, you know, maybe first it's McDonald's, but later it's American television, it's American universities, it's people coming from America to study there, it's people coming from there to study in America. And very quickly, we end up injecting our culture and our values into that country. That's not always a 100% positive process. I've talked in my Iran shows that there was actually an extreme backlash in that country, and they started calling it West toxification or West sickness, the pollution of Iranian culture with American culture. So it's not not an unfettered or unmitigated success all the time, but... Pretty sure the French would use that term too. Yeah, exactly. But the fact is, 
what the State Department does, one of its main jobs is opening markets abroad. It's, it's opening up other countries to U.S. influence, not to the thumb of the president pressing down on top of them, but from U.S. culture growing up from below. And that's, that's what's incredibly, that's a, exactly, that's sort of the unheralded success of the State Department. I did a video uh, about a year back. It's one of my favorite videos I've ever done. It's called Why Regime Change is Always a Mistake. And it, it's just a really basic fact of the history of the past 30 years that is almost never mentioned. You've got a couple military and intelligence community-led projects of regime change that have taken place over the past 35 years that have been disastrous. You've got Syria, you've got Iraq, you've got Nicaragua. You've, I mean, it's, you've got Afghanistan, which is probably the worst of all, uh, not just dating from 2001, dating back to uh, 1979. I mean, these have been nightmares for the countries involved. But what nobody ever mentions when we talk about sort of regime change is that like going back to 1979, the year that I was born, going back then, most of the world was ruled by people who were like Assad or worse. Talking about all of Eastern Europe, I'm talking about most of Latin America, I'm talking about, uh, I think, almost all, if not all of the sort of Asian tigers that we think of as such, you know, well put together places today, but sort of South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, uh, Philippines, uh, Philippines. <laughs> I do so great either. But anyway, um, but sort of all these places were under, you know, straightforward, nasty dictators. And it and wasn't pretty much all of the Middle East also. Exactly. Well, <laughs> we're still mostly there, with the exception of Tunisia. But like all of these places were run by horrible, horrible people. And now they're not. Now they're run by, you know, regimes that go back and forth, some backsliding, what have you. But they're run by dramatically better people. And they are run in something close to democracy or, or a representative government or whatnot. And, and it's fantastic. And none of them got there through military engagement or intelligence community shenanigans. They got there because of, like you said, a McDonald's, because of trade deals, because of sort of cultural exchange and business relationships that were fostered by the Department of State. I mean, the world is a dramatically better place in my eyes. As, as neoliberal and, and hyper-capitalist as it may be, which I don't really have much trouble with, you might, um, it is a dramatically better place because of the work that the State Department does. We, and the, and, and the, other thing, the other thing that would be uh, essential to point out is that that world in 1979, the dictators in Asia, the dictators in Latin America, almost all of them owed their positions to the United States and almost all of them were receiving aid from the United States, right? And in many or most cases, against the advice of career foreign service officers. But what's interesting, especially if you look at a place like Vietnam, is when we tried to apply military force, when we tried to apply the force of our intelligence agencies against the advice of career foreign service officers, what did we do? Well, we imposed the Vietnam War on the Vietnamese, and we made enemies out of the Ho Chi Minh regime. And as soon as we backed off, and as soon as the American people with its incredibly short attention span forgot about Vietnam... You know, five years later, they were trading with the United States. And now they're a key partner in Southeast Asia. All that we needed to do was just to back off, just to back off. And the people are happy to have us come in. Yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, just, you know, it's, it's, it's not the direction in which we have over the last 20 years directed our growth. Like, like we said at the top of the show, the proposed budget for the military this coming year is $700 billion. And that's to confront no obvious military threat to the United States. At the same time, we want to cut the State Department's budget by a third. 
down to $37.6 billion. So when you look at the influence of those two different agencies in the world, you know, the Department of Defense, yeah, it kills a lot of terrorists, fair enough, but also creates a lot of terrorism. You know, its presence in bases abroad, the presence of troops on the ground in Yemen and in Syria and in Iraq and actual true presence in Afghanistan versus advisors, which is what we have in all those other countries. Those create tensions with those countries, and they end up creating radicalized people. They end up attacking the United States. You look at the State Department, these are people who draw down on those tensions. These are people that open those markets to create opportunities for U.S. democratic culture to take hold. And we are funding them to the tune of 20 times less than the Department of Defense. And it just doesn't make any sense as we confront a world that is less and less susceptible to the use and exploitation of military force. Uh, before, So before the live chat uh, devolved into a sea of... Uh, uh, yeah, we got a lot of shit posting. Yeah, 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 sort of sea of racism. And that, I, I think I got an actual death threat against me, which I'm quite... This is not about. our normal live chat, but we, yeah, we have a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment in here. That I'm yeah, not and, yeah, there was also a fair amount of anti-Semitism. But earlier on, uh, they... they uh, um, they were talking about, I think they were talking about boots on the ground and sort of the utility and cost of boots on the ground. And I think that was actually a very interesting conversation. And it's, it's, it's just amazing how much more expensive and useless military engagement is than State Department engagement. It, it's counterproductive and terrible. And I think that's something that needs to be emphasized. I've had conversations with some folks in the military, interestingly, no officers, in the military, uh, but you know, enlisted folks in the military have this idea that the State Department's not necessary and the military does a better job, yada, 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 sort of delivering humanitarian stuff, which you know, could very well be true in like individual cases. And it, it's, it's, that, that sort of strikes me as nuts. The, you know, a, a State Department foreign service officer um, has the potential to avert boots on the ground, which is one of the most expensive things that we do as a, as a country. Yeah. And something brought up in my own show is, so just, just imagine we've got a situation going on with the country. Say, say it's Vietnam in the early 60s or really in the, in the late 50s. Say it's Korea right now. Whatever. We get a crisis and there are a bunch of options on the table and some of them are violent. Well, the, when the president goes to make a decision on this, right, what he does is he speaks to everybody. Well, you know, this president may be accepted, but normal presidents would speak to and get briefings from and consult with everybody whose agency is going to touch on the stuff that he's going to do. So he talks to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He talks to the National Security Council. He talks to the NSA. He talks to the CIA. Sometimes he talks to the FBI. And what's important about every single one of those agencies is they all have skin in the game. Every one of those people wants their solution to be the solution that gets used. You know, The Joint Chiefs of Staff is never going to recommend that you don't use military force because that does not improve their bureaucratic position. And they also they don't have a lot to say about peaceful solutions to problems. The National Security Council, it's got its own vested interest. The NSA, the CIA, they want to do drone strikes. They want to monitor more people. The only player in this game, the one that doesn't have an institutional interest in one answer versus the other, is the State Department. And as the State Department loses ground, not just in budgetary terms, but in terms of attention and prestige, especially on Donald Trump, who, who basically says also that it doesn't need to exist, what ends up happening is you get, especially with a president like Donald Trump, who has no attention span, no expertise of his own, and very little ability to parse information coming in from other people. When he's got six guys telling him to bomb, and one dude, the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, you know, falling asleep in his chair and saying, yeah, maybe don't do that. Well, you end up bombing. What we need is a strong voice that looks at solutions objectively without an institutional interest in one or the other. 
Sorry, I was getting caught up in the uh, in the uh, live chat. I'm trying to stay away from it now. It seems seems pretty off topic and uh, pretty racist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what this shit posting is that you you talk about you kids these days, but uh, there seems to be a fair amount of that. Is that a term? Did you you advertise this show on the Donald? Is that? I you know I think I you know I've got a lot more um, I've got a lot more subscribers now than I did the last time we did this a month and a half ago. So. Well, I'm, I'm I'm hoping that there's some people actually listening to what we are saying that they'll chime in with some. No, I uh, mean, some... I mean, I mean, these dudes shit posting in chat. That's what I'm. Yeah, I'm wondering about. Hasn't oh, that's an thank you, Cletus two two three. Hasn't the State Department mostly served as a tool of the CIA? Asks Cletus two two three. You have some thoughts there. Um, I think that's a I think that's a fascinating question. I mean, the degree to which. Uh, the agencies and departments of the government are interweaved is a, is a fascinating question. I would say that, no, actually, the CIA does not, that the State Department is not exclusively a tool of the CIA. Um, and I think that also the question itself also comes to that, that our tendency to focus on a few countries, like in Turkey or Syria or another country that's falling apart then yes, I would say probably the State Department is not a tool of the CIA specifically, but is definitely a tool of the intelligence services or actually functions as an intelligence service itself. It's extraordinary the work that State Department or USAID does in Syria. I mean, they're actually doing some of the work of regime change. You know, they may not be sending uh, crates of AK-47s to Al-Qaeda, but they're providing the food that people in Al-Qaeda areas need to live. I, I don't think that the uh, the line between the CIA or the intelligence community and the State Department, I think all of these agencies sort of interact with each other. But I think calling the State Department a tool of the CIA is, I think, not not appropriate. I think in during the Cold War, when we actually had most of these agencies agreeing on a mission and heading in the same direction, I think there were probably disputes between the departments as to how, how things were done, but it could look more monolithic. But uh, as if we're talking about like the State Department in Tanzania or France or something like that, no, I do not think it is necessarily a tool of the intelligence community. Yeah, one more note there is the thing that might create that impression is that pretty much everywhere in the world, the CIA runs itself out of U.S. embassies. So it creates this impression of overlap. But the guys who are CIA officers are not State Department officers, and the reverse is true. You know, Foreign Service officers do not work for the CIA. What Rob said about intelligence gathering, though, is very true. That is that, you know, we think about the CIA and the NSA as these people that inform us about what goes on in the world. But the great majority of intelligence that comes to the White House, you know, through diplomatic cables and everything else, comes from the State Department. Because the great majority of stuff we want to know is not secret. You know, it's stuff that comes out in the newspapers of other countries. I mean, even I, I briefly, in my time as a Peace Corps volunteer, served as part of the State Department's intelligence gathering apparatus because I had to fill out a ton of forms about my village in Mexico. No one's ever going to look up that information. But if somebody did, that's where it would come from. You know, I wasn't a spy. I was just a kid filling out forms. This is how many houses we have. So the vast, 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 vast majority of information that is gathered by the U.S. government comes from the State Department about the rest of the world. But no, they are, they are separate agencies. They have their own priorities. And they're often at loggerheads. The State Department is not a tool of the CIA. Unequivocally. Yeah, unequivocally. And also, I, I, I do want to speak to a broader issue that I, you know, it, it's kind of nice that everybody in the world thinks that the CIA is some kind of omniscient, omnipotent 
all-powerful, all-seeing organization, but it's really not. Um, I mean, these guys are, you know, generally speaking, a bunch of jokers. I mean, you know, they've managed to pull off some things over time, but they've all managed to sort of bite us in the ass. I mean, just this idea that there's some sinister plot and and somebody in the U.S. government really knows what's going on is um, false. Yeah, that's entirely true. Yeah. There, so there were actually, there were two good questions. And I'm, I, Zach, yeah, Zach Osborne, uh, what's changed at the State Department since HRC used it as a tool for her Clinton Foundation? Companies oh, man. Donate, hmm? I said, oh, I man. It's a, it's a worthwhile question. Okay. Companies would donate to her foundation, then she would arrange deals through the State Department. You want to respond to that angrily, and then I'll respond to it in a more uh, mediated I- I don't need to be angry. It's just, it's, it's tiring. So first, first is that whether or not any given company in any of these particular cases had donated money to Hillary Clinton's foundation, whether or not any of that had happened. And when she was head of the State Department, she wasn't running her foundation, just so everybody knows that. She would still be the point person for arranging deals for these companies abroad. That's her job at the State Department. That is her job. So whether or not they'd made a donation, that's what she would have been doing. And the second thing is that if you go with any journal of record, if you go with the Wall Street Journal, if you go with Newsweek Magazine, if you go to the New York Times, if you go with any actual news organization, they've investigated every single one of these cases. And in not a single one has there been any quid pro quo exchange of money for favors. At all. Ever. Never. Not one. Hillary Clinton was a strong Secretary of State of the kind that we need, active, and with zero proven wrongdoing. Zero proven wrongdoing. So just, I mean, if you want to bring up, and Rob, we'll get to your objections on, on, on that second front in a second here, but if you want to talk about wrongdoing by Hillary Clinton and the State Department, get me one solitary article from a reputable source that alleges it, um, uh, and then so, we can talk about it. So, I, I, you know, when you say that Clinton was one of the best uh, secretaries of state ever, I sort of refer you to everything that happened while she was Secretary of State. Though it, perhaps it's unfair to attribute world events to her, but I mean, like, and I guess Ukraine was marginally after her tenure? Oh, no, no, no. I don't, I don't mean necessarily that her agenda was a good agenda. I'm saying we need Secretaries of State with that strength of character and activity. What, I, what I'm saying is we need strong Secretaries of State. Not necessarily that she had the agenda that I would agree with. Yes. Uh, yeah. No, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. yeah as far as the Clinton Foundation stuff, I've got a video on this topic. I don't think that, yeah, I don't, you wouldn't find any illegality or, or like direct quid pro quo, quid pro quo in such a sense as it would, you know, be, come up as bribery or something else that was legally actionable because, I mean, the Clintons are better at that. But I do actually feel that the Clinton Foundation was a bit of an influence peddling organization. I mean, it was their own private Davos. But as far as the question, I think what you said was actually very important, and that answers Zach's question. You know, what's changed at the State Department since HRC? I mean, the State Department and Secretary of State, I mean, like doing deals, like opening markets, that, 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 I mean, that's part of what the State Department does. So even if you're going to ignore what I say, that the Clintons didn't do anything illegal, and what John says, and what every reputable newspaper says is that there was nothing illegal there. Even if you think there was something illegal going on there, the State Department shouldn't have changed from that. They're still supposed to be doing deals and stuff. Yeah. And I mean, something something that's come up again and again in conversations on the left about Hillary Clinton is that the appearance of impropriety is as bad as impropriety. So 
Did Hillary Clinton do anything illegal? No. Should the, the Clinton Foundation been entrusted to a trust? Well, I don't think there's actually really any way to do that. You know, that's a sticky situation that would have been hard to navigate. Uh, maybe recusing herself from... from the, the point is, Hillary Clinton often looks bad even when she's not actually doing anything bad. I think, uh, frankly, I, th I think the Clinton Foundations has done some interesting work in Africa, should be applauded for that. It's great stuff. But I do think that if you were going to set up an organization like that, neither one of them should have uh, gone back into public service. And I know that's unfair, maybe even sexist or something like that. But um, I think it'd be great if Obama set up a foundation. People actually like him. I bet it could go do good work. But I think it would be tremendously problematic for there to be a Barack and Michelle Obama foundation and then have Michelle Obama run for president. I mean, that's just a simple, you, 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 that's just a simple power relations thing. Like you can't occupy a position of such central power, like the president of the United States or their spouse, and then, you know, spend 20 years building an organization with all the richest and most famous people in the world that come together and then like go back into public service. I just think that's just not good for republics. That's also why I wouldn't really be a big fan of Michael Bloomberg as president. Um, but anyway, we're getting way off topic. Yeah. Should we do another, we do another question? Or, uh, wait, 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 should, or should I give you the opportunity to reply to that? I should give you No, no, I, I think you're pretty much right there. Yeah, if you've, if you've seen legitimate questions in this, in this cesspool of a chat, yeah, totally. <laughs> okay. Uh, what do you think of the idea that foreign services should be heavily purged every 15 years or so to prevent ideas becoming calcified? So Peace Corps has a policy similar to that proposal. That is that you can only serve as a staff member, not a volunteer, but a staff member at Peace Corps for five years at a time. And then you got to leave and you have to spend an equal amount of time out of the organization before you come back. And as far as I can see, it's, it's not a great policy, especially in terms of getting people raised in a U.S. environment to relate on a deep cultural and political level with people abroad. More time is better. And like we were talking about with, with Robin Raffel, this diplomat who lived in, who lived in Islamabad for a couple decades, it's actually, it's valuable to us to have people that have gone a little bit native. You know, they represent a constituency for the country that is valuable in decision-making when it comes back to Washington. So no, I don't, I don't really like, I don't really like uh, the idea of purging people from the foreign service. Plus it takes, it takes like 30 years to actually rise to this service. So, so doing it in 15 would be unworkable. Yeah, and then just this, this idea, uh, you know, it's interesting, this, this sort of term limits, I mean, obviously it's very different, but this, this sort of term limits idea or that people, it's, it's better to get people in and out of positions of power or responsibility quickly. Uh, this is something that I used to buy into. I mean, I, I, was, I was once once upon a time a much more conventional sort of conservative. I never considered myself a Republican, but, but I, having actually looked at things and, and sort of made it through the world a bit, I, I, I don't think that actually works. In, in Congress specifically, you can't have someone come there for four years because they're not going to know a fucking thing about the job that they're trying to do until they've been there for five to ten years. And especially, as you said, in, in, in the Foreign Service, I, I think there's actually maybe too much purging in the Foreign Service at this point. As I think I'd, I'd mentioned we were talking earlier, John, I think the only worthwhile reform idea that's been, that, that I've seen is that the, the tenure of foreign service officers should be longer. They should spend more time in fewer countries and actually get to know those countries better. I mean, first and foremost, I mean, that mission statement the, the, of the State Department that we read earlier sounded great, but I think first and foremost, these folks have got to know and get to know and get to learn about other countries. That's not a two-year or a five-year or a 15-year process. That is a career-long process. 
And uh, no, so I do not think that the foreign service should be heavily purged every 15 years or so. I think that yeah. uh, I think that's a mistake. One, one last, one last uh, point there is um, we, we got a tiny bit into it at the beginning of the episode, but so the foreign service is like the only part of the American government that has a really rigorous civil service exam process. It's, it's the only one. Um, and to become a foreign service officer, right, there's exams, I think, three times a year. You pass through that, then you get shuffled to a set of essay questions. Those go into a performance review board where they look at your test scores, your essays, your resume, your work experience. If you pass that, then they send you to a day of interviews, which are the, the kind they do for like uh, high-end consulting firms where you do case studies and, and stuff like that. Then you do security, health, language, and a couple other reviews. And after a year and a half of this process, then you get stuck on a list, at which point they might, might appoint you to an actual position within the Foreign Service. Once you're there, it works the way that, in a certain sense, the military does. You rise through Foreign Service ranks, and it has some of the same up or out policies as the military. That is that there are always new officers coming in, and if you're not competent enough to rise up, then you transfer out. You know, you, you go do something else in your life. Um, so there is there is consistent turnover in the Foreign Service. And even though it's not any better paid, really, than anywhere else in the government, it is maybe the one place in the government where we're funneling in the smartest people uh, in the United States. These, these are people who could have gone to work in consulting, could have gone to work in finance, could have made a ton of money, but instead they came to serve in the Foreign Service. Oh God, our, our, our society is so sick when the, when the pinnacles that we can imagine are consulting and finance. Yeah, I mean, so I don't know how many of our, our listeners or the people in the chat right now know, but I went to Georgetown University, which traditionally sends people in the Foreign Service. I went to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. And when we came in, you know, 90% they polled and 90% of the class wanted to go into public service of some kind, whether it was Peace Corps, whether it was the State Department. And by the end, 90% of the population of the School and Foreign Service at graduation went into finance and consulting because it's just, it's better paid. So the last point of all this is that the Foreign Service is this incredible resource that we have in the government and instituting purges is just increasing the degree to which we do not use this resource. And yeah, and, and also for J Jim Bob, I mean, we're kind of doing a purge now. Um, we'll see how that goes. Um, he actually had a, he had a good follow-up. Uh, he says, it's not so much the idea of term limits, more that when you look at U.S. foreign policy, you see some things that seem to be continued because it was the policy of 20 years before, uh, e.g. Cuba, Iran. And that is absolutely true. That is a great point, but I don't think you can actually blame that on career civil servants because it's yeah. actually often the civil servants that are pushing against those dumb ideas. Yeah, I'd say the continuance of uh, moronic policies, especially ones that are as dumb as Cuba. I mean, I mean, Cuba and Iran are, are like the examples par excellence of long-running, totally ineffective, moronic policy, right? But what the that's sometimes a result of the State Department having lost ground against these other constituencies within the government. Because the people who work in the Foreign Service in those countries, they know the actual situation. Whereas the people on top of the military and the people like Donald Trump don't. The people in the Congress don't understand the situations of those countries. That's how you have congressional Republicans year after year calling for war against Iran when people in the interest section there are going to be like, uh, no, it's, you know, it's no reason to, to make war. So purging the Foreign Service, I think, I think would actually work against changing bad policy. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. So I think we should perhaps move to, I mean, what's your favorite idea for reforming? Uh, the State Department. And I, I like a lot of this really technical stuff coming out of Brookings. 
where they uh, they want to get rid of all of the functional bureaus, all the stuff that aren't uh, regional, and they want to create under each regional undersecretary, or right now they're assistant undersecretaries, functional offices. So instead of there being an office of human rights and then somewhere very far away in the organization, an office of regional affairs and then Asia and then Thailand, under the Asia desk, there would be a guy for human rights and for arms trade or whatever else. And then under the Thailand desk, there would also be a guy for human rights, right? So you'd build in concern for these functional areas under each of the regional desks. And what you end up doing is you end up streamlining the decision process. So instead of having to go from regional desks to all these other bureaus, all of that would happen in its travel up through the regional assistant and undersecretaries. And you'd streamline decision making, which would lighten the load on the, uh, the secretary himself and hopefully speed up the bureaucratic processes there. But again, this is stuff I don't actually know about. This is stuff I'm pulling from Brookings' suggestions. Yeah, for me, it would definitely be longer longer tenure of, of, of foreign service officers. And uh, perhaps, I mean, it's it's a difficult thing to do. I know, it, it, I guess there's an interest, supposedly, in making these folks generalists. And I can see, I think probably the main reason these tenures are so short, I mean, it just strikes me off based off essentially nothing um, is that probably people don't want to stay in a career where they're the expert on a particular chunk of sub-Saharan Africa or, or, or something like that. I think foreign service officers want the, the potential for something glamorous or, or something like that. I mean, that perhaps is the reasoning, but... Yeah, no, you're actually... I can speak to that right there. One of the reasons the foreign service still captures... You know, there's maybe, there's maybe two reasons the foreign service still captures people that would otherwise be going to Deloitte. One of the reasons people come is it's still extremely prestigious. It's hard to get in, and just the prestige of having gotten in is a reason to try to get in, right? But the other one is that there's an opportunity to do those really excellent, glamorous postings. So I got a buddy in the Foreign Service, and he's right now serving in Honduras, right? And that's a hardship posting. You know, it's hard for him to leave his compounds because Tegucigalpa is the most dangerous city in the world. And so his kind of reward for that is his next posting is three years in Vienna. Well, that's, that's great for him, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because he's not building up any regional expertise. And to tell someone, like, you're only going to be in Central America for the rest of your life, yeah, you know, that's tough. Um, it's exactly the kind of regional expertise and depth of knowledge that we need to be building. And that's and how, how to crack that nut is, is difficult. Um, but, I mean, you know, perhaps, you know, you, 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 you give, people, uh, give people rewards. Like, you're only allowed to serve in London if... Uh, You've got 15 years in as a Papua New Guinea expert or something along those lines, you know? And I mean, it's, it's also, I mean, it's hard to find a region in the world that doesn't have at least a couple of cities that are cool to be in. Like, you know, you serve your three-year term in Honduras, and then maybe you serve for a while in Mexico. So you're in the same region, but you're in a much better place. You know, same thing in South America. Maybe you're serving on in a consulate that's, that's pretty close to FARC operations, even though that's dying down right now. But then later you get to serve in uh, Buenos Aires. Yeah. And and I think and as the world gets gets better and better as it has been doing, uh, there are more and more interesting places. But I, it's I, I really do think it is vital for the State Department to to evolve in this fashion. I mean, it, it's uh, I'm probably more invested in in you know the American world order than you are. But if it's going to survive at all, we need to get a lot smarter. I mean, we're we're it, it's it's staggering, staggering dealing with folks and uh, in Washington, D.C. generally, and just realizing just like how little they know about the world outside. And when we're the big swinging dick, we can do that. It, it's fine. You know, they come to us and uh, we've got the power necessary to knock people around. But 
uh, that can disappear. Man, you know, we're just we're just looking at a century that might not any longer be the American century. And even if we're still one of the largest countries around, we're going to have to start learning or relearning how to relate to countries uh, without any deployment of military force or the threat thereof. And the, the other important point is, you know, when we talk about increases in the State Department budget, we're talking about something on the order of 10 or 20 billion dollars a year more. And with that 10 or 20 billion dollars or man, God forbid, 40 billion to double the department, We'd, we'd be doing so much work, so much work to keep ourselves out of conflict, to keep the world more stable, to maintain the Pax Americana, and, it, and at so much less cost than the military. It is so much cheaper to put a highly trained political officer in a foreign capital than it is to put one U.S. serviceman there. A foreign service officer in his fourth or fifth year, he's making maybe 80 grand, 80 grand and a little bit of overhead to keep him there. One U.S. serviceman is a million dollars a year. Not in pay, obviously, but in logistics and overhead. It's just, it's just cheaper, man. Yeah, and you know, the, and, and if for people who are invested in the sort of the continuance of, of U.S. power, there's just one like really basic point that I tried to make in a video a month or so back. It's sort of like war is the problem that the United States government does not understand. It's, 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 it's through the promotion of peace. It's by getting more people to buy into this system peacefully. That's how American power gets preserved. Like, I do believe that, you know, this century can also be an American century if we revise the definition of American a bit to actually American rather than a U.S. century. I, I, I really do think that that's a possibility. But it, it's not possible if we continue, not just on the trajectory that Trump put us on, but on the trajectory that Bush and Obama put us on, or even going back to Clinton. You know, Trump is an acceleration and a, and a nightmarish caricature of decline. But uh, this, this sort of hyper-militarization that we've been up to since 9-11 is, that's the fastest ticket to the fall of the American empire you can imagine. And that's about it, guys. Like I said, it just kind of ends there. But trust me that it makes for a cleaner cast than the full discussion would have. And if you're into that, the original video is linked in the show notes. Keep talking to me on Twitter, like Bruno has been, because I enjoy hearing from you. I'll keep everybody posted on what's going on via our social media and the intros to the December shows, when and if they happen. Hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving, or if you're not from the U.S., a good last weekend in November. You'll be hearing from me soon. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this, not just this show, but this, this whole thing, is safe for democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.